You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and think it's somehow fit for public consumption. Um, <laughs> so That might be debatable sometimes. <laughs> yeah. We keep the really crazy stuff to ourselves, you know. You've you got to be sitting with us at a restaurant, you know, chatting to get the, the really weird stuff. Yeah, come hang out on the patio sometime. That's, you know, that's where the real fun happens, but... Um, so, okay. I know that we have a podcast. Well, yes, we do have a (laughs) podcast. Well, um, I I have to tell you this. I don't know why I thought of this just now, but I thought everyone needed to know. I saw something really funny the other day and it was, I was, it was at at school uh, where I work, there's a pond and there was a branch that was like just barely under the edge of the water. And so I turn around, I turn in the other day and I pass the pond and there's a duck standing on the branch, but it was just under the water. So it looked really funny because I could still see his feet. So it was standing on the water. Just standing on the water. Um, it's Jesus duck. Yeah, it was, it was or pretty duck, funny. Or duck, it's Jesus. Um, so. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I don't know why I felt the need to tell everyone that. I just did. Um, hopefully that's enjoyable. It's one of those few things that happens in our life we can actually talk about and not feel like it could be used against us in a later date. So fair enough. So anyway, ducks aside, we've got uh we stopped kind of in an odd place with the story last week. So I think we need to you can give us just a brief recap and we'll get going. Right. So uh last week we had started to talk about this guy named Shiva who had basically said, Hey, look. This king thing is just not working out for us. We need to rule ourselves, kind of basically return back to the time of the judges. And, uh, of course, Joab had been removed from his position and replaced with Amasa. And Joab wasn't having any of that because he's just not the kind of guy to go with the flow. And he killed Amasa, and he then took over the pursuit of Shiva. And now Shiva gets back to the city called Abel Beth Maka. And he's inside the city. And we kind of started to talk a little bit about that and how the city is really interesting because it's being excavated. Mm -hmm. So it's not just someplace that we have no idea where it is. We, you know, we, we know what, what the city was used for. We know, uh, what was happening in that city at this time period. There's even, um, evidence of these different siege warfare events that had happened, uh, whether it was Joab or the Assyrians later on, um, either or both, who knows? But the the point is we, we do have some verifiable data and we're going to talk about how that helps us understand what's actually being said in this passage, because a lot of people don't realize this. And I, I got to have this conversation just a few minutes ago, actually. Um, a lot of what we know as far as archaeologically, as textually, is better today than it was back in the time like when the King James was written. They didn't have these same finds. They didn't have this ability to look back into time the way we have 
begun to do over the last century or so. And mm. it's just, it's amazing that we can actually unravel some of these riddles that were in the text that nobody knew what to do with until we, we you know, unburied some of these cities. So Yeah, and, and archaeology has come a long way. I mean, I think we talked about a lot of that when we had uh, uh, Becca on. Uh, yeah. That, you know, archaeology has basically, it's, it's moved from being just grave robbing into becoming uh, an actual discipline. And, and being able to catalog where things were mm-hmm. found because, mm-hmm. you know, before it was just, hey, this is cool. Let's go put it in our museum and make up what we think <laughs> about it. in it. our living room. And then the yeah. grandkids go, what in the world was this? I mean, and they chunk it out, you know? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, we've come a long way and, and we, we are living in a very privileged time. And it is kind of interesting that we do know more um, as time has uh has passed. It, it seems like it should be the opposite, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so a lot of times people have this idea that if a document is old or older, it must be more reliable than what we produce today. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem is people have always been people and people have always liked salacious stories. They've always liked easy outs. And so just because something's old does not make it reliable. And so I think we need to remember that because if we don't, then what we wind up doing is we start giving credit to just whatever is, um, it has the, the earliest date and that's not always the appropriate thing to do. And so, but Shiva, um, had made it to the city and we've got to remember the fact that Shiva's at the city was David's biggest fear. And back, back in first five, he had told Abishai, he said, Hey, you know, if he gets into a fortified city, which Abel Beth Maka was, if he gets into the city, he could disappear. He could escape. So Shiva had... And Joab's all like, well, hold my beer. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Pretty much. And so, you know, David's biggest fear has been realized. And I think that's a really key point. We need to remember this is a big deal. This is not a game of hide and go seek. This could actually make or break Shiva's revolt. Mm -hmm. So... That's, I think we tend to look past that. We don't realize what a um, big piece of the puzzle this is. He also doesn't enter the city alone. We're told that he, he enters with the Bickrites and the uh, Bickites, uh, Bickites, whatever. They've got this really weird name and there's actually some debate on what the name of these people were. And he, well, is he it, goes, is it, is it Bick? Bickrites. Bickrites. Well, he's uh-huh. the son of Bickry, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess I wonder if that's kind of an adopted name that he kind of gave to his group. Is that kind of what we it, think it, it is? It could possibly be yeah, those people who joined with him. It could also be uh, other family members who are with him. Uh, basically, it's his army. It, it's the people who are devoted enough to travel with this guy, knowing that David is out to get them. Remember back when we talked about David running from Saul? David had his men who went with them, and to be with David was to put their lives at risk. It's no different for Shiva. And mm-hmm. so this is, you know, these guys, they evidently think that when they get to the city, and David does too, by the way, so this is not un, an unfounded belief, that they get to the city that they can gain some kind of control. They can get a foothold. They can have a place to launch um, their attacks from. So the name Bickery itself is, is kind of... Um, it's not an uncommon name. Uh, we've got a few different people. We know that uh, there's uh, a Bikri who was Esau's father-in-law. We know that uh, 
and that's in Genesis and in Hosea, uh, his father, his name is Bichri. So, you know, it kind of spans the Old Testament showing up in various places. Um, precisely who these people are really isn't all that important. The, the important part is the fact that Shiva's not alone. This is not one scared man hiding out in a town. This is a man bold enough to take his army to this town and basically quarter them in this, in this city. So we're going to pick up in verse 15. And it says, And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in the Abel Beth, of Bethmacha. They cast up a mound against the city, and it, stood ag- and it stood against Rampart, and they were battering the walls to throw it down. So this is siege warfare, and there's a couple of different ways to do siege warfare. The first one is basically you just surround the city, you cut off any kind of supplies in the way of food and water, and you basically starve them out and hope that the people are going to give themselves up to you. Mm-hmm. So this, this could take years, this could take months. It really just depended on whether the city had an independent water supply within its walls and whether or not they had you know, stores of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that some cities at this point in time would hold out until the inhabitants were resorting to cannibalism. Uh, that's in the Bible and in another few places. The other method is to um, do what Joab is doing here, and it's just build this rampart up to the wall, get close enough that you can start breaking down the wall, beating it with whatever utensils you have, a battering ram, whatever. And this way, was a lot more dangerous. And, you know, the, the, there's multiple problems with this method. Number one is you've put your troops at risk. Mm-hmm. The people in the city with archers, spear throwers, they can fling rocks. Uh, there's accounts of women on the wall with boiling oil and water and pouring it down on people. Um, basically, whatever the people in the city could get their hands on to throw at you would get thrown at you. And so if you're going to practice this method of siege warfare, you need one of two things. You need an army of disposable troops who are more afraid of you than whatever the people in the city are going to throw at them. Or you need a group of very courageous soldiers who are going to just fling themselves into danger because they love you and trust you that much. Right. Now, we, we already know that Joab's men do love and trust him this much. This is why he was able to order Uriah to get close to the wall at Ramah. This is why so many other mighty men died in that episode was because they believed that Joab was uh, smart enough to, to pull this off. Now, we also know that these men follow Joab. Why? Because David, he'd already um, threatened David and said, hey, I'm going to take the army with you and we're going to do our own thing if you don't straighten it up. And then whenever he killed Amasa, the men just, they fall in line. So Joab doesn't have a problem with any kind of devotion or loyalty from his men. And so the first part of this chapter actually establishes that, that point very well, because we've had all these stories so, you know, where the men basically, okay, Amasa's dead. We're gonna, here's Joab. You know, th- there was no hesitation on their part other than you know, when they were confronted with Amasa's bloody body. But we need to remember, Joab has reunified the, the tribe of Judah. And you know, they, they've gotten their king back. They're, they're invigorated. They are just, they're excited. They get to reclaim 
Jerusalem. They get to reclaim Israel as being under David's reign. So they want to, to support David. And so the army is prepared to go wherever Joab's ready to lead them. Now, Abel Bethmaka should be afraid because these guys evidently, and, and obviously from the text, are not the kind who are willing to just starve people out. If they get into the city and they believe that the people of the city are defending Sheba and his men, the Bikrites, I the city's looking at a very possible um, total annihilation of everyone in there. That would mm-hmm. have been, they were harboring one of the king's enemies. This was treason. What's the punishment for treason? You kill the, tre- <laughs> the treasonous people. And, you know, he could have made um, an example of this entire city for the rest of the nation. Don't rebel against David. And knowing Joab, I, I could definitely see that being an option that he would take because he will do anything it takes to defend David as king. Mm-hmm. We've seen that over and over again. And so the fact that the city does not immediately fall to Joab, they don't immediately surrender, actually tells you a little bit about the, the kind of people who are in the city. I mean, evidently, they're pretty brave. And they, they've got some faith in their, the walls of their city. And it's probably for good reason um, that the Bible really takes a moment to stop and tell you, hey, the walls aren't falling. They're battering the walls. They are not falling. They're, they're holding up. And um, the, the city is, is not cowering in fear before Joab. And it's, it's, just, it's just odd when you think about how, what a huge character, what a, what a big personality and sway that Joab had over the people versus, you know, this guy Shiva this, you, that nobody knows. So there's something going on within the city itself because otherwise they would have just said, hey, here he is. Mm -hmm. And they don't do that immediately. There's a pause. There's a long enough time to build this rampart. That takes a long time. It's dirt. It's rock. that has to be moved by hand. There's no bulldozers to do this. This is going to take place over days. So this isn't something that, you know, Shiva arrives, Joab and the guys build a rampart, and that afternoon all of this happens. This is something that, that has been drawn out. And so the city is not basically not somebody or some place where the people give in to threats and fear. So I, I think that we forget that because the, the pacing of the story is such, you don't get that, that kind of pause. You don't recognize, oh, there's this, um, there is this, uh, break in there. Sorry, I just, my, I plugged my computer into the wrong charging port and which the one that doesn't work. Ah. So <laughs> I just got this thing that said I was going to lose power. But anyway, verse 16, then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. So we've got a couple of uh, pertinent pieces of information here. Number one, this is a woman of status. Uh, she, she's, significant enough to earn a title. She is a wise woman, not just a woman, a wise woman. And her standing is such that she believes that she can send a message to the only man in Israel who is brave enough to defy the king to his face and have him obey her. Because, I mean, she's really saying, uh, it's a variation of uh, the form of the word shema, 
which Shema means to listen with the intent to obey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's ordering this general around. And this is the same word that begins the prayer, the famous prayer, the Shema, Hero Israel, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It's the same word. Mm-hmm. And so she's using here the same word that God uses when he's talking to Israel. So that tells you a little bit about how she perceives herself. And the response she gets is going to tell you how others perceive her. So you kind of have to ask yourself what kind of woman gets to command David's general around, you know, stop in the middle of the siege, come have a a parlay with me, and to openly in front of the city make this request. I mean, she didn't make this request to Joab. She had to send messengers, and she had to get messengers to hear her from across the wall. This was not something that was done in secret. I mean, she's in a city that's completely sealed off. That's the whole point of siege warfare. Mm -hmm. So... Now, and Joab is not somebody who stands on social niceties. We've already seen that. I mean, Amasa's got his job. Well, you just kill Amasa. No big deal. Right. He's the, <laughs> that's what I, I think really stands out for me. He's not going to respond to her just to be polite. That's not who he is. What's more, the woman seems right. to, ex- yeah, the woman expects him to obey. And so she seems to have no doubt that the underlings, whoever the messengers are, are going to give Joab this message. And there's a certain authority in her words that really kind of come across when you you stop and think about what she's saying, the situation they're in, and how much hinges on the fact that Joab needs to hear her. Because this isn't like, oh, please come hear me. I, you know, please, please, you got you gotta give me two minutes so you can can hear what I'm proposing. I she's speaking with real authority here. Uh, he needs to come to me. And that's the other thing. He needs to come to me. Not, I'm going to go to him. Because, and that's not just a matter of logistics, but the fact that a general would go to a woman because she said you need to come meet her really says a lot about who she is too. So verse 17, he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Now, she doesn't seem to be unknown to him. I mean, evidently, um, he, he recognized her, whether he was introduced or what have you, but he didn't get the same kind of respect. Nobody introduced him to her. He, she was pointed out to him. And it did kind of remind me of that moment back when Saul's, before he was king and he was looking for the um, donkeys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he hadn't heard about the, about the prophet in the area and he didn't recognize Samuel right off. And so there's kind of this uh, little throwback to that story. I'm not sure how significant it was, but it, there is something kind of telling in the fact that she expects to be known and the, the writer expects her to be known. Right. So the, the woman calls herself Joab's servant, you know, listen to your servant. And now if we've been following along, we know this is not a self-deprecating term. I know that reads that way to us as modern readers, but to say that you're the servant of somebody who with, you know, prestige and status is actually a way of elevating yourself. Moses was God's servant. And to to call somebody a servant of someone in a high standing is actually a way of saying, this is how important I am. So she is basically making a claim to, to, hey, I'm your servant. I'm close in status to you. I, I'm not someone far removed from you. 
So mm-hmm. she's she's not saying, oh, you shouldn't listen to me because I'm a nobody. She's saying, you need to listen to me because I am a somebody. It, it's the total opposite of what we expect from the language. And, you know, the proximity is really the issue. So Joab responds that he's listening. And all this talk of hearing servants obeying, it evokes another um, episode in Samuel. And it's when God called to Samuel himself as a boy in the, in the temple, or sorry, in Shiloh, it wasn't the temple yet, but right. in Shiloh. And, you know, they have this shared vocabulary and some shared themes where Samuel, you know, calls, is called by God and commissioned to be a prophet. And Saul seeking the, to find his donkeys had to go to a prophet when he was commissioned as king. And then we have whatever's going on here. So we kind of have these three stories kind of melding together where you've got um, this commissioning aspect, but you also have this listen and obey and this recognition. And so we're kind of being reminded that this is part of the story of Samuel as a whole moving forward, that these themes haven't been lost. And we're going to look at why it's important that we need to remember these previous stories as we move forward. So verse 18, then he said, they used to say, sorry, she said, they used to say in former times, let them ask at Abel. And so they settled a matter. Now, the Bible never gives us any background on Abel Beth Maccah or why the people would inquire here to settle matters. What we do know from archaeology is that there was a sizable cultic complex. And again, for people just tuning in, cultic does not mean evil. It just means that this is the religious ritual and observation of serving a deity. So, you know, what we do that's specific to Christianity is also cultic activity, not yeah, a cult. Yeah, that's cult. one of those words that kind of got corrupted by, by pop culture usage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so in in the city, we, we have these things. We have benches, we have stone offering tables, we have standing stones, we have basins, we have this unusually large collection of ankle bones. Now, I had to stop and wonder, you know, what is an unusually large collection of ankle bones? Uh, by the way, that's 425, just in case you want to know what qualifies as unusually large. Well, it's collection. definitely larger than the number of ankle bones I have at my house. Yeah, I personally have two. There's a few more running around the house, but anyway. <laughs> well, but- I was going to count everyone in the household. I mean, we have eight here and not all the time. And they're still yeah. in use. <laughs> right. And this is just, they had a, there's pictures of it on the internet and I need to get, get the links up, but there's pictures. It's a big jar and it was just full of these ankle bones. There was and, just a jar full of ankle bones. Uh, yes. It, because I was about, of- I was about to make a joke and ask about that, but <laughs> it's literally just a, a jar full jar of ankle bones. Full of ankle bones, 425 ankle bones. <laughs> and what the, there's, okay. There's two possibilities. Human ankle bones. No, no. Uh, sheep, goats. So, yeah. Okay. Not, so not human. Animal ankle bones. Yes, true. True. Yes, animal. So let's make that <laughs> distinction. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I mean, it's good to be specific about this sort of thing, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, um, there's just... It's so odd in our co- in our context to think about what these could be for, but the the idea basically there's two ideas uh, the archaeologists have put forward. One is they are pieces for a game. 
okay. Um, I sure. Um, there were various games that would use animal bones as uh, kind of almost like dice that you would throw out, and if they landed certain ways, then you won certain things. Whatever. Um, maybe the other is very similar in how it would be done. The ankle bones would be thrown out and then read by somebody who was capable of divining what they meant, you know, and these would be oracles and augury and things like that, that would allow people to see into the future and, or get some kind of confirmation of what God wanted, whichever God, what the gods wanted of this person or had, um, had faded for this person to endure. So we, we really don't know what this was for, but that is, um, one of the or two of the possibilities, given all of the other cultic um, accoutrements that were there in the city, I kind of go that this might be part of a ceremony for div- divination, kind of like casting lots. And so it wouldn't have been, um, that's not a far-fetched possibility at all. And this, you now this stuff here predates the arrival of the Israelites in the city. And so this is something that the city has been known for, for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, that this is pretty much a city that's been uh, continuously uh, occupied. I think it was from the Bronze Age or the Iron Age, but way back there. And there's only been a few breaks in it, that there hasn't been someone there. There hasn't been some kind of religious function happening in the city. Now, of the articles I read identified... um, it, within the city itself, we don't know which deity these were used in service of. There was just absolutely nothing as far as anything that I could um, discover, you know, whether this was one of the Canaanite gods, whether it was the Israelite god, we, we don't know. Uh, so there is some question However, verse 19 kind of gives us some interesting speculation because verse 19, the woman's still speaking. She says, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother of Israel. Why would you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? So the, the woman suggests that there are some people within the city, at least, at least some who are faithful to God, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. And that she's one of them. And so there's a very good possibility that she could be, that these things could be used actually in some type of religious ceremonies that involve the Israelite religion. We don't know. Um, you know, the, uh, the commentators actually read this not as a religious statement. Uh, that was one of the things I found very interesting as I'm, I'm reading the story is there is kind of a lack of comment on the story in a lot of ways because a lot of commentators find it baffling. They don't understand why this event is recorded the way it is, what the significance of this particular woman is. And so they've really had a hard time trying to to wrap their minds around this particular event. Now, the uh, I think they they've missed a major point here is that this is not a political statement. This saying that she is loyal to Dave and, you know, read in, sorry, that we shouldn't just read this as she's loyal to David because it overlooks a few things about that culture and context. You know, there's no distinction between politics and religions at this point in time. 
if you followed the king, then the, the God that king served was your God too. And if you followed, you know, Yahweh, then God's king was your king. The two blended and converged in such a way that you, there really was no distinguishing between the two. The woman has just stated that this is a city for spiritual guidance. You know, they the settle matters here. This is where people go to, to understand what the will of the gods were. The woman's been identified as a wise woman, and wisdom is an attribute of the prophets. It's something that God gives those who speak on his behalf, and it is evidence of one's intimacy with God. And then she calls the city some very interesting things. She says, it's a mother in Israel. Now, most commentators read this as a statement concerning the city's geographic situation, that this is a mother city, so it's a central city. Mm-hmm. And then it would have daughter cities that were uh, that branched off around it, kind of you know the the you know Dallas proper, and then you have all your suburbs. But this is um, this reading is not without basis. Okay, let's let's be clear on that because a mother city is a very common concept in ancient cultures. Matter of fact, we still have that same concept today. We just don't realize that when we talk about a metropolis. We're literally saying mother city. That's what a metropolis is. And in Judges 127, we find a reference to daughter cities. Now, you aren't going to see that if you're reading the English. It's going to say villages if you're reading ESV and I think most other English translations. But in the Hebrew, it's actually their daughter cities, not villages. And so there's, there's something going on here that... Um, that is bigger than just a political statement or a geographic statement. There, there, there's something deeper. And if you try to flatten out her words to, to take away this religious, spiritual aspect of them, which I think is completely inappropriate given the culture and context when she's speaking, then yeah, this, this episode really seems bizarre, but I think we can make it make sense. But I want to look at um, the last phrase before we kind of look at some other Um, factors that go into how I'm reading this. She says, will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Now, why would this woman call a city of divination, a place known for oracles, the heritage of the Lord? So I think the answer has to be that this woman believes that she, in some respects, did serve Yahweh. She did, because that Lord there, that is Yahweh. That's, that's not Adonai. That's the yod heh vav the Tetragrammaton, mm-hmm. the heritage of the Lord. So I think what we need to remember is consulting wise women or wise men was normal. Remember that episode of Saul going to look for those donkeys. What did he do? He went to the prophet. Why was he going to the prophet? Because the prophet helped you find things. He operated as an oracle very much in keeping with the time, casting lots, throwing ankle bones. This is an accepted methodology in Judaism for discerning the future and what the next course of action should be. Uh, you inquired before the, uh, before the ark to settle matters. Uh, and so if you didn't have an ark, you did talk to the person who was most spiritual in your city. These are all acceptable ways in Judaism under Torah to try to understand and discern God's will. And we've got to remember that, you know, what separates divination from prophecy is kind of context and who's doing it. And, you know, where the source of inspiration is, is it, 
Is it God giving the information or is it seeking information from an outside source, a source that's an illegitimate source that's off limits? So if you're seeking God, then there seems to be several episodes in the Bible where even though the methodology may be questioned, the, the intent and purpose is still honored because the heart is right. So let's finish out the, the, the story. And then we're going to circle back and pick up some stuff because um, there's some really interesting things that two archaeologists who've worked at the Tel uh, Abel Bet Maka that, that they've picked up on. So verse 20, Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That it is not true, but a man of, of the hill country of Ephraim called Shiva, son of Bikri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, this his head shall be thrown over to you over the wall. So don't miss what's going on here, first off, because this woman has just knocked the second most powerful man in Israel back on his heels. He's got, she's got Joab apologizing. She's got him you know, basically cringing, no, that's not me. This is, this is not the same Joab who kills Amasa. Right. You know, th- this... Joab has a completely almost foreign attitude towards this woman from anything we've seen from him before. And she just negotiated on behalf of and for the fate of an entire city. Right. She didn't go back and consult a a council of elders. She didn't go ask somebody's permission. She just told Joab, hey, not only are we going to surrender the guy, we're going to give you his head. And so this is a woman who really feels that she has some position in standing because she has the right to do this. And Joab sees her as having the right to do this. He didn't say, hey, well, did you talk to your dad before you made this pronouncement? Do you need to go consult your husband? He accepts what she says. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's very telling. But we, we don't like to look at it in that perspective because, I mean— we know there weren't any spiritual or uh, political women leaders in the time of the Bible, right? I mean, that's we just don't even credit that as a possibility. And I was being completely facetious for people who couldn't see um, see my face. But it's also interesting to me that she's the one who comes up with this rather gruesome solution. She doesn't say, "Hey, we'll march him out, and you know, we'll tie him up. We'll, you know." keep him here in chains for you. You can come pick him up later. We're going to toss his head out. So, um, you know, this is a woman who makes very final definitive decisions, very much like Joab does. Mm -hmm. And so she's really kind of presented as the equal to, to the second most powerful man in Israel at this point in time. And so to me, the story is not baffling. It's fascinating. So verse 22 Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Shiva, the son of Bikri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So basically the woman goes in and says, hey, this is what we're going to do. There's no record of the people disputing it. There's no town hall meeting. They don't take a vote. They just do what she says. And, well, and and the other thing is, yeah, it, and it wasn't it wasn't like a secret thing. It wasn't like with Rahab where she hid the spies from the people in the city. She was not acting on her own accord. 
she's not acting on her own accord. And the other thing that's fascinating that we've probably already forgotten by now, Shiva did not go into the city alone. Right. He goes in with the Bikrites. He took his army with her. And so, you know, if she had been one woman acting alone, that would have been pretty impressive for her to be able to get his head. But that's not what it says. The city agrees. She goes back well, to the people. She talks to all of them. Yeah. And not on, and it would have been really impressive not only to, to get it off of his shoulders, but to then transport it to the wall and chuck it over. You know, that's Without kind of a, being killed by it, his army. Exactly. Yeah, and we could remember this is the guy who sent David into a panic. When Absalom invaded Jerusalem, David kept it together. He he's like, okay, we got to come up with a plan. We're going to withdraw peacefully. This is the way we're going to do it. When Shiva has his revolt, what's David say? This guy can do us more damage than Absalom. So, you know, this is the guy that makes David, who faced Goliath, panic about the security of his throne. And this is the woman who says, hey, I've got it handled. So we need to really look at that comparison. And so, yeah, she, she does have the backup of Joab and his army, but they're on the other side of the city wall. She's in the city with Shiva and his army. And so, and we've already seen that the city isn't particularly concerned about what Joab can do as far as getting into the city. They've been holding right. out. So, you know, she has got some ability to sway. And I think that we forget that because it does happen so boom, 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 fast. I mean, there, there's no break. There, there, we don't get to see any of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And then the writer does something completely ingenious, okay? These are the things that make the writer of Samuel just, just brilliant, in, um, in my opinion. We have come full circle from the, from the beginning of chapter 20 to the end. We're, we're right back where we started. Because if you go back and read verse 1, Shiva is starting off his revolt. And how does he do it? He blows a shofar. Joab has just blown the shofar. He has called for every man to his tent. Here, every man returns to the tents after Joab wins. The men withdraw from David in verse 1. With this verse, they withdraw from the city and Joab returns to David. So we have this, this complete reversal that's gone on in the space of these verses here. This, this story ha has taken us, you know, just, just showing us that what uh, Shiva had originally called for, that he wanted to gain through rebellion, through defiance, is actually occurring through honoring the king. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just, it's amazing how the, the writer just very subtly shows you that it's obedience and it's loyalty that gets you back in your own hint, tent. It, it's, that's how you find your position in society and you're able to, to rule yourself. It, it's not because you defied the king. The king is actually there to make ruling yourself possible. And so um, it's, I just, it's so subtle. That if you don't read slowly and you don't process those bits and pieces, you're going to miss it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just, I love the fact, too, that we're seeing Joab, David's biggest defender, take out David's biggest threat. That the threat that David has acknowledged is his biggest threat. And then, of course, once again, we have Joab working with a woman. We've seen this before with the wise woman of Tekoa. Um, and the, um, we shouldn't really be surprised. Because at almost every pivotal 
moment in David's reign, it's a woman who shows up and changes the directions of what's going on. And this story has really baffled a lot of commentators. Like I said before, they're either going, oh, we just, we just don't know what to do with it. This is so weird. And then the other thing they do is like, they, they tell, go through the story very quickly and with, without a lot of comment. It's almost like they don't know how to comment on the story. And I think one of the reasons for this is that idea that women didn't occupy positions of power and influence or that they weren't political and spiritual leaders and that any woman who dared to aspire to such a position was either, you know, um, an indictment against men like Deborah. So she's a weird uh, exception or she's a Jezebel who's just demonstrating the dangers of female rulers when that's not what the Bible shows us when the Bible, I mean, we have those moments. Number one, I don't think Deborah was an indictment against men. I think that's inserting our, our bias. Right. Um, you know, come on. If God had wanted a man leader, he would have chosen one. That's the reason why he had Samson born. But then so many women who are in the pages of Scripture are actually, they're very faithful, and they're portrayed in a very positive light despite the things that the men around them are doing. And so if you begin with the presumption that women leadership is either non-existent or it's something that's just terrible, then you don't get the full meaning of the story. The story is baffling and it is confusing. And so I think we need to peel away some of our presuppositions and look at what the text is actually saying. And now we don't just have the text, we have what archaeology has shown us. And it kind of breaks through some of the, the noise. And so, well, and, and what the other thing is, you know, you were talking about there, there's not much commentary because of the presuppositions and because of judgment and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and I'm, I'm sitting here running, I like, how, how do you get around this? Um, you know, we don't read the books. Well, that's, that's true. I mean, yeah, you don't read them with the intent of actually soaking in the story. Oftentimes, a lot of times when people are reading this, they're trying to get the, the moral implication. I'm trying to think, you know, it's like, what what is the solution here? And I'm like, like I can just hear people saying, "Well, this is this is just to show you what happens when when you put women in charge, people get killed." And it's like, well, the men weren't doing that great anyway. <laughs> you know, it's the yeah. There was lots of lots of death going on and and gruesome deaths. I mean, Joab had just killed Amasa. Come on, well, and and that's something that we kind of <laughs> overlooked last week was that when Joab killed Amasa, it says he didn't stab him a second time, and then you come down a, a a little bit later on the page, and it says that Amasa was wallowing in his own mm -hmm. blood. Well, dead people don't wallow so much. <laughs> so yeah. not only did he stab him in the stomach and spill his entrails, he left him alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, I and mean, you, we kind of over the wording's very, you have to be looking at it. It's kind of a softened wording the way it comes mm -hmm. together, but it's, it's pretty gruesome. And that, I'm kind of going, maybe that's why everyone was stopping to look at him to, to assess the situation. Is he gone or can he be saved? Um, right. Do we need to patch him up or we just need to give him some more liquor? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, if your intestines are on the ground, how much good is that going to do you? Um, True. <laughs> anyhow. Um, but yeah, well, and a lot of this, it, it comes down to stopping to think about the story, stopping to think about how do you react if you were in the story? Uh, you know, how did the people around you today react to similar situations? If you think people are reacting in a completely different way today than they did back then to, to inconvenience or frustration or danger, 
you don't know a lot about human nature, okay? These people were not stupid. They were not somehow lesser than us because they lived back then. These people are really smart. They are managing to stay alive in conditions that would have killed most of us, Mm -hmm. or at least made us wish that we were dead. So, I mean, they are making a life and they are writing some of the most, evidently, as since we have in our hands, some of the most influential literature that has ever been produced. And they're doing it because they have managed to become an educated society without the help of formalized government-sponsored schools and institutions. I mean, this is, this is amazing. And mm-hmm. so w- we need to stop discounting who these people were. And, you know, the idea of getting a, your hands on a scroll, getting your hands on a parchment to study, that took effort and will and determination. And now we have books, you know, scattered around everywhere, and you can't get people to read more than a, a, a Facebook post. But anyhow... I won't get off on that tangent. So I found this article by two archaeologists. And if you Google them, you're going to find their names attached to so many different projects and so many different studies and papers. Uh, It's Dr. Nava Penitz-Cohen. I hope I said that right. And Dr. Nema Yahalom-Mak. So um, if just look them up if you want to get their credentials. I'm not even going to go into it because I didn't even know where to begin. But, I mean, they have done some work with Hebrew University and some other places. But in 2019, they published an article together that was uh, in the Biblical Archaeolog- Archaeological Review. And they examined the story of the wise woman at Abel, Bethmaka. And it takes into account a kind of a broader perspective of history, context, and some of the themes within Scripture. And so um, one of the things that they first off that they note is that this wise woman is nameless, just like the wise woman of Tekoa. So we kind of have a connection there. And we need to remember that that wise woman in Tekoa actually played a crucial role between Joab and David in his reign, mm-hmm. because that's, it, you remember, she was the one who helped facilitate getting, getting <clears throat> excuse me, getting Absalom back to Jerusalem. And the connections, of course, are the, they're women, they're wise, and that they are working with Joab, who is one of the highest people in Israel, Jerusalem. I will try to say them both at the same time. Uh, and and they, they have some respect. They're honored by Joab, and they're honored by David, or at least the wise woman of Tekoa is. Now, the difference, of course, is that the wise woman of Tekoa kind of basically has her speech dictated to her by Joab. He tells her what to say. But she's still having to figure out how to present it to David in a way that he can hear. Mm. And so, you know, there, there are some distinctions. They also look at Deborah, and, which is appropriate because in Deborah's song, we also find the phrase that this woman used, mother of Israel. Only in Deborah's song, Deborah is referring to herself and not a city. And so we need to remember Deborah is not just a respected woman. She is a prophetess and she is a judge. And that she was somebody who led the military onto the battlefield with Barak. And so she was also somebody that people consulted to have matters settled. Uh, She sat under the palms and they would come out to meet her. Um, And if we consider that Samuel and Deborah were prophets from the same era, then we can kind of assume that there was an expectation that she'd also be able to help find lost things, much like Samuel did and so forth therefore functioned along the same lines as an oracle. And then we also have these points of contact uh, between 
the we have this sorry these points of contacts between the three stories so you've got the the mother of israel the prophetic oracle aspect of their work and then you have leadership as exhibited in the wise woman's use of diplomacy and the response of joab and the response of the people in the city to the woman so now the basis of what the the, the good doctors of this article came up with basically hinges on these three points and they said, number one, that the traditions place them at the early part of national and religious development. So basically before the kingship. So we have more wise women. We have uh, women in these positions of leadership before the monarchy really became established, which we've kind of already seen hints of that. But they're going to disappear as we move further into Israel's history. Uh, they operate at more peripheral uh, regions, towns, and villages. So they, they aren't in Shiloh. They're outside of Shiloh. They aren't in Jerusalem. They're outside of Jerusalem. They're, they're places that um, people would be if they didn't have quick access to where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so then the third point that they make was their authority and influence were entrenched in the social and cultural fabric of, er of the early Israelite society and was more of a tradition rather than an appointed position. So these women, they, they aren't elected. They aren't uh, appointed by a king. They are someone that the, their um, neighbors, friends, and village have recognized these innate qualities about them and elevated them to a position of someone who is trusted. So these are, these are significant kind of basis of, of where we began. And then there's another little detail that they picked up on, and it's only included in the Septuagint. And it might shed some more light on what this woman's role in the city was. In the Septuagint, 2 Samuel 20:18 reads, Surely one was asked in Abel and Dan whether the faithful in Israel failed and what they purpose. So almost every English translation omits this, this reference to Dan. I, I looked at several of them. The only translations I could find that included this reference to Dan were specifically translations of the Septuagint, and they did not rely on the Masoretic text for this particular verse. And what we need to remember is the Septuagint is at least a thousand years older than the Masoretic text. Right. And so the Septuagint is what Jesus and the apostles quoted from most often. And so it was considered a very reliable source. And so we have this weird, completely unexplained mention of Dan in the oldest documents that preserve this verse. And I know we were talking about how age doesn't always mean trustworthy, but there, this is the Septuagint. It was the most widely read version of the Bible, even in Jesus' time. And now you got to think back to our last encounter with a significant encounter with the tribe of Dan. And that was in the last part of Judges. When the tribe of Dan decided that they didn't like where they were positioned in the country, and so they decided to move. Mm -hmm. And on the way, they stopped by this guy named Micah, his house, and they managed to coerce his Levite to go with them. Mm -hmm. And so in Judges 18, 19, when they try to persuade this Levite that, hey, you need to come join us, what is, they say, you need to come be for us, what, a father and a priest. And so it's better to be a father and a priest basically for a tribe than just a single household is what they say to him. 
And so we have this second textual connection with the Septuagint's inclusion of Dan, this being a place where you inquired about spiritual matters, and now uh, this reference of a father and a priest as a, as a counterpart, a male counterpart to being a mother. Now, those are pretty weak connections. I, I'm, I will give anyone that point. I'm not fighting for it. What's interesting is Dan is also being excavated. The city of Dan is also being excavated. And what we find are very similar cultic complex, a very similar uh, construction, and a lot of the same accoutrements that were we found in, oh, I say we, I wasn't there, but are found in Abel Bethmaka. Were there ankle bones? You know, I should have tried to look that up. I, I will be honest with you, reading archaeological reports are like the most boring things in the world. I applaud Becca for being able to wade through them. Uh, I want somebody to summarize it for me and just give me the high points. So if it's not in, <laughs> in a summary, I'm probably not going to see it. Fair enough. But, but I just feel like that might have been, I mean, given our earlier yeah. conversation, that might have been a, a point of interest. <laughs> the ankle bones on their own, wherever they're found is a point of interest. It's just so weird. Well, I mean, presumably... <laughs> Presuming they're not with the rest of the body, that's when it becomes interesting. I mean, at any other point, you know, yeah, why, you just why got just a whole person bones? or yeah. <laughs> animal or goat, sheep, yeah, sheep and goat. Yeah, that's right. They weren't human. Goats. Yeah, you're just a little dark today. So <laughs> there's a lot. There's hey, there's a lot of details about these ankle bones. I just wasn't prepared for any of that today. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, and I even stopped researching all of this at some point because, like, I got to get on with the story. But um, so, what we do know about Dan as a tribe and as a city was that when they got to their city, they set up a graven image and it remained in use as a worship center, at least in some twisted way in service to Yahweh in what they thought was appropriate. Now, there's a whole lot of debate on exactly what happened there. And I'm not going to get into all that, but it, the point is this spiritual center remained in usage until Shiloh uh, stopped being used. So it was, you know, it was someplace that was well-known. And even later under Jeroboam, um, he reestablishes Dan as a spiritual center. So the city was known for being someplace that, what did you do with spiritual centers? You go there, you inquire to get a matter settled. So the, the fact that she might have included Dan with this reference wouldn't be unusual if the two cities were functioning similarly, and the archaeology seems to bear out that the two cities were very much, in fact, functioning in a similar manner. And the, um, the other thing that's interesting about Dan is when they make their new, new home, there's a notation that, that the city they conquered was under the protection of Sidon. Now, Sidon was a Hittite city, and the Hittite texts that we have from this era talk about wise women or old women, they use the words um, interchangeably, who were ritual experts, who practiced various forms of divination, fertility rites, they were healers. And so you've, you've got kind of this, this the, the whole picture coming together is that this woman was not just a woman who happened to be wise, this is her title. Mm-hmm. that she fulfilled a specific role that required wisdom and that this this wisdom is an attribute of someone who has this ability to hear from the gods or god um 
Again, wisdom being one of the attributes of the prophets. Now, Panitz Cohen and Yahalom Mach uh, suggest that these cultic con uh, complexes presence enable uh, Beth Maka provide the appropriate backdrop to view our woman, our wise woman through. Um, and the sim similarities between Dan, which was formerly Laish, which was a Hittite city where this was all practiced, um, can help us understand the roles and functions of each city more fully. So they, they very much, they're clear that the two cities should inform us on how we deal with each city. This wise woman gives us a description that is in keeping with what we know about Dan. And so therefore allows us to actually see the possibilities of what Abel Beth Maka was, despite the fact that the Bible never spells it out for us. Now, they're very clear. There is no definitive proof that this woman was a spiritual leader. And I, I think there is enough evidence, though, to, to go there, to, to consider it as a possibility. I mean, she's credited with wisdom. Joab teacher, treats her with great respect. The people of the city, they don't dispute her decision. The women in leadership um, was part of the fabric of the culture of Israel at this time, particularly at this time period uh, where it, the monarchy has not been fully established. The connection to Dan itself, uh, we have a tradition in uh, scripture and throughout history where um, co-opting sacred spaces from other cultures was the norm. Jerusalem even... Uh, was not originally an Israelite city used for worshiping Yahweh. Bethel was not an Israelite city where worship occurred. Dan itself was not an Israelite city. And we, we have this pattern being repeated. And what we find is these, these centers of devotion and honoring of Yahweh, if you dig down deeper, a lot of times there are evidences of previous religious uh, activity to other gods happening in that same spot. This is not uncommon. And even in the time of Samuel, which wasn't that long ago, because Samuel was the one who appointed David or anointed David, uh, he conducted his sacrificial feast, where? In the high places. And worship was not limited to the temple, because the temple didn't exist yet. Right. And so when this woman says, in former times, she could very well just mean before David established Jerusalem as the center of worship. And so I think we, we see her in the role of a spiritual leader. We see her in the role of a political influencer at the very least. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that she doesn't have a name, that her title alone is, is enough to sway people and to get them to consider her words and to obey her, I mean, that, that's huge. And I think the only reason why this confuses people, again, it's because the idea of women in leadership is just, just weird, but the Bible and archaeology clearly show us that women are leaders, and they're often spiritual leaders, and which, according to the cultural dictates of that time, to be a spiritual leader also meant that you were a political leader, and to be a political leader meant that you were a spiritual leader. And the good, you don't get to separate the two. Sure. And the, do, the doctors point out, and I always say, wrap up here, uh, that... The doctors, you mean the people who worked the, on... Wrote the, the, uh, the article. The, the, yeah. The, yeah, okay. I make yeah, sure they I'm both have hyphenated there. names. And, Sorry, yeah, I got so, a text a couple minutes <laughs> ago, so I... Thousand Lashes with a Wet Noodle. Well, it was, it was um, Mrs. Dolan. You can't not reply to her. 
from what you said, I agree. So, yeah. but yeah, but the, these women's spiritual leaders were very much part of the experience before the monarchy. And we shouldn't be surprised to see them, like I said before, these wise women, these women with influence show up when, when David's in trouble. And they're either rich, they're influential, they, they have some kind of wisdom about them, and they are the ones who over and over again save him and preserve his reign. And so, um, you know, we, we need to remember that it was women who really connived and conjoled and, and, and conspired to, to keep David on the throne. And without them, you know, there's no telling what would have happened to David. So um, I do love the fact that this, is, this woman prevents a large-scale civil war in the nation through her deeds and actions. And that got me thinking about another story uh, in a previous book that we've studied. And we're going to talk about how this story actually plays off the story of the Levite and the concubine in our next episode, because I see we're out of time. So. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. There was a lot of good stuff in this one that I didn't. That I I would it's have the just, ankle bones. They're yeah, gonna stay have, with you forever. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna think about those quite a bit. Um, so uh, yeah, that no, that actually made me think. I need to get my uh, Cajada de Burro back up here. Maybe hang it on the wall. Um, maybe in that blank Jawbone. space over here that I was talking to you about earlier. <laughs> that before we started. Oh, that's just an excuse to buy a new instrument. I know well, you. No, well, you know, well I. I already have the Cajada de Burro. It's, I just need to go pick it up. It's, it's in Mickey's classroom. So. That being I said, back. Um, I think it's a good place to break. Um, I'm, I'm going to be working on things. You just don't wake up expecting to talk about ancient collections of ankle bones. <laughs> so um, everyone, let us know what you think of that. Um, hit us up on the website, ravencreeksc.com is where you can find that. Uh, Raven Creek SC on all the social media. and. Uh, Head us up, be part of the conversation, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us next week.